0: Good morning, church family. I have a question for you. Has anyone seen a road closed sign anywhere in College Place? Just wondering. If you like those, you are going to especially like Sabbath October 3, where there will be two more. A quarter mile apart, blocking off 4th Street, for the 7th edition of The Longest Table. And understand that our sister institutions and churches, uh, the other Seventh-day Adventist colleges and universities in North America, this idea is cropping up across the country, I've been seeing it. So the original Longest Table (laughs) will be taking place and in just a couple of weeks you will have opportunity to sign up to host a portion of that magnificent banqueting experience, but we are looking forward to that on 4th Street on the 3rd of October, Sabbath. I love today because we are beginning a brand new, fresh-out-of-the-box sermon series entitled, Characters and Character. Fifteen weeks, we are going to study together colorful characters, case studies in the Scriptures, and an attempt to look at the character traits of these individuals that we might take a look at our own character issues as well. And I am very excited that my pastor and yours, Chris Lowen, will be our chef this morning dishing up the Word of God. So, Chris, lead us in reflections on Josiah.
1: me, off the top of your head, you might be a little bit ignorant of the details of Josiah's story, and so I thought we should begin by just having a quick overview of that. His story is found in 2 Kings, 22 to 23, and it's also found in Second Chronicles, 33 to 35, and for bonus points, the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah was a contemporary prophet at the time, so if you want bonus points, you can go back and check that out this week. So, Josiah was one of the last kings before the Babylonian exile. I think there were three more after him. He was right there at the end, and he became king at eight years old, eight years old. His father, Amon, was assassinated after a very short reign, and his grandfather was known as Manasseh. He was king for 55 years and was not one of the kings that tends to be celebrated in Israel's history of kings. He was one that introduced polytheistic worship. He sacrificed his own kids to the god Molech. He had a long list of stuff. So those are the patriarchs that Josiah inherited. And so we wouldn't have to imagine that he would need to do a whole lot to improve on his, uh, what, he, what he inherited. You know, to be regarded as a good king, there wasn't that high of a hurdle. And as it turns out, Josiah earned his reputation as being a good king. When he was 16 years old, 2 Chronicles tells us he began searching for God. And as you might imagine, after 55 years of all kinds of worship of all kinds of different gods, this, this kid who grew up in the kingdom really didn't know who the God of Israel even was. So at 16, it says he begins searching, and I imagine him having conversations with elders, with different family members, maybe having conversations with some of the Levites or priests saying, like, who who are we? Like, who is, who is this God that I keep hearing about? Tell, tell me about the, the old stories. And by the time he's age 20, Chronicles tells us that he's been convicted enough that that there's a disconnect between how things are as he inherited them and how things ought to be according to God's plan that he begins reforms. He begins changes. He outlaws worship of other gods. He breaks down uh, altars to other gods. He reestablishes right kind of worship in the temple and so on. He begins this kind of purge of the whole empire. The Chronicle says that by the time he was 26 years old, he had raised enough money to totally renovate the temple. Passes that money on to the high priest, and it's at that point in the story that we're told the high priest Hilkiah he discovers the book of the law. He discovers the Torah, and so. It's kind of a, a crazy idea to imagine that there's been multiple decades that have gone by where he, where the king, where the, the priests, where no one had access to the book of the law, and it's discovered, and they send it, uh, send it to uh, Josiah to read. One of his servants reads it to him, and, and the text in, in Chronicles says that when he hears it, he goes into a state of grief. He's filled with shame and guilt. And sadness, and he goes into this state of mourning. He tears his clothes because he's just completely overwhelmed with how different things are with how they ought to be. I mean, he kind of had that, I think, idea going, but here he's confronted directly with the word. He, he's horrified at what he's seeing. So immediately the text is, the story says that Josiah pulls the whole city together, everyone who's in Jerusalem, all the Levites, the priests, he pulls everyone together, and at the temple, Josiah confesses on behalf, not just his own, but he confesses on behalf of the whole nation. Essentially, as the leader, he says, I'm taking responsibility for everything that's happened, and I am making a covenant with God in front of all of you. We're going to do things differently. And so to me, as I, as I read Josiah's story, I can't help but think about humility. I can't help but think about the character trait of humility. It's not just something that comes up at one point in the story. We see it over and over and over again. He begins by this curiosity. what God? What's God like? What's He about? I don't, I don't even know really anything about Him. And then he humbly accepts the things that he's learned and tries to incorporate them into his kingdom. He submits to the expertise and authority of other leaders in his kingdom. He confesses his mistakes and owns up to errors that aren't even his. It goes on and on, obeying God, submitting to his will. There's just so many ways that Josiah exemplifies this character trait of humility. And of course, humility is incredibly important for us as we're growing, as our character is developing, as we're becoming the people that God made us to be. In fact, I think that humility is a prerequisite for learning. You know, sometimes I'm, when I try to teach Finn something, I'll ask him the question, hey, Finn, do you know, do you know what that is? Do you know, what, what's that animal? What, do, you know what that, do you know what that's called? And very often he'll say, yeah, yeah, and then I'll say, well, well, what is it then? And he'll say, I don't know. I don't know. And it's just like, it's this repeating thing. It happens all the time. Hey, Finn, do you know, do you know where mom went? Yeah. Yeah. Well, where is she? I I don't know. I don't know. And he's like, he's ready to absorb it, but he, you know, has the response wrong. But I mean, anyone who's a teacher knows that like, if you have a student who thinks they know everything already ahead of time, then it's going to be really hard to teach them. And in sports, coaches a lot of times talk about whether or not a player is coachable and whether or not they'll receive critique or insight or, or wisdom. So we have to have a posture of some kind of humility in order to learn at all. Uh, the great um, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright discusses this, and he actually uh, talks about how humility… Is the gateway for all the other virtues for followers of Jesus. And I have kind of a, a long quote here, but but stay with me. He says this: the implicit religion of many people today is simply to discover who they really are and then to try to live it out, which is, as many have discovered, a recipe for chaotic, disjointed, and dysfunctional humanness. The logic of cross and resurrection of the new creation which gives shape to all truly Christian living points in a different direction. And one of the central names for that direction is joy, the joy of relationships healed as well as enhanced, the joy of belonging to a new creation, of finding not what we already had but what God was longing to give us. And then get this, get this, don't miss this, at the heart of the Christian ethic is humility and at the art of His parodies, joy. Different roads with different destinations, and the destinations color the character of those who travel by them. And so I don't think it's an overstatement to say that Christian transformation, in order to follow Jesus, in order to even accept salvation, it's not possible without humility in our lives and I think Josiah's life was a model for that. And I think it's because of that that it's surprising to see how jo- Josiah's life ends, because he shows this incredible trait in the first part or the, in the majority of his life, really, but at, but at the end we have the exact opposite thing show up. And in some sense, I feel encouraged by that because I don't know about you, I see sin in my life and God's Spirit in my life every day. I I don't really live in just this binary land where I'm holy and perfect every day, every moment. I I mess up, and then God works on me, and it's it's just everything every day. And and, and we see that in this great man, Josiah. We see this same dynamic in his life. So, this is how it ends. It's laid out in the Scriptures. In, In 2 Kings, Josiah kind of goes out as a war hero, there's not a lot of discussion, it just kind of describes well. He, he dies in battle and that's it. And so it's sort of like, you know, this ball of flaming glory, you know, way to go. Uh, in 2 Chronicles, there's a few more details that kind of flesh it out, and, and, so, and the picture is a little less flattering, and so this is kind of how, how, how it went. Before Josiah came into, came into power, uh, the Assyrian Empire had really dominated the region. They had decimated all of Judah, the northern kingdom. They had done everything but conquer Jerusalem. Um, Jews were scattered all over the whole uh, region. Stuff was really messed up. But, but, but by the time Josiah came into power, uh, the Assyrians were starting to wane, And then by the time he was kind of in what ended up being the end of his life, he's about 30 years old, 40 years old, um, Babylon was beginning to ride, the Babylonian Empire. So this interesting situation comes up where the the Egyptian Empire – intends to march north to support the, Arian, the Assyrians. So I have kind of have a map here with arrows, right? You have Babylon kind of moving in from the east and Assyria is up there. They're resisting. So the Egyptian king, King Neco, says, all right, I'm going to go up and support the Assyrians. We're going to march through. And, and the problem with that is that he had to go right through uh, Israel, right? He had to go right through the Israelites' land. And, and Josiah is like, wants to resist this. His impulse is like, no, 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 you guys aren't going to come through here. And there's a fascinating dialogue that takes place between the king of Egypt leading this army and Josiah. The king of Egypt, they essentially have a meeting when he gets to Jerusalem. And the king of Egypt says, listen, your God came and talked to me. And he told me to lead this army north to go join the Assyrians. I'm under orders from your God. So if you're resisting me, you're resisting your own God. And Josiah responds essentially by saying, no, 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 no. no. Like, God, God didn't talk to you. God, like, you're not even a part of our tribe. Like, why would God talk to you? He didn't talk to you. I don't believe that one bit. You're, God doesn't do that. That's not how it works. And so Josiah essentially says no, and he dies that day. And it's over. His reign, all the good he did, it's done right then, in a brash of arrogance. And that's how it works, right? And that's how, that's how arrogance shows up in our lives. It sneaks up on us. It, supr- it surprises us. It catches us when we wouldn't have expected it. We all know the wisdom in Proverbs 16, that pride goes before a fall. We all know that's true. the, The problem with arrogance is that those of us who are arrogant don't really realize we're arrogant. It sneaks up behind us. It's kind of like you've probably seen, I have a video here of, uh, of athletes who celebrate a little bit too early. This is a video some of you maybe saw last year of a, of a runner from the University of Oregon, at the end of a race. Let's uh, check this out. Take my word for it, there's a moral to this story. <laughs>
0: yeah, it looked like a coronation for Tonje Pepio. He's getting the crowd, he wants the crowd to cheer his performance, and at the end he gets pipped. He gets pipped by Marin Simon of Washington. And you just can't do this kind of stuff, Lewis. (laughs) You can. And you know, you see his
1: face, and you know, no one has to say anything. They don't Uh, have to explain it to him. He'll never make that mistake again. So that's arrogance, right? It sneaks up behind us. We don't see it coming. We don't realize what it's going to do to us, but then it's there, and it's too late, and we didn't realize it. I mean, people that like, I know that when I'm in a place of arrogance and the people that I know that I would say, yeah, he's kind of arrogant, they, like, they wouldn't say that, they wouldn't know. They would say, no, I'm, I'm just really good looking. You know, I'm just really good. I'm just really talented. I'm not arrogant. I just know what I'm doing, right? Like that's how it shows up in our lives. Now, I don't think that, that arrogance is only a threat on the individual level, although I think it is in terms of character. I also think that it can affect us on the corporate level as communities. I think it can impact businesses and churches and families and organizations. Some of you maybe remember the story of Netflix blockbuster video. Does anyone remember blockbuster video? The story, I mean, it, this it happened in kind of a dramatic way. Well, not at first though, right? Back in Late late 90s, early 2000s, Netflix was a mail-in DVD company, right? And Blockbuster was this behemoth. They were, in, they were the leaders in everything. M- tens of millions of dollars in profits every single year. Thousands of stores in, in multiple countries. Blockbuster dominated everything. Huge marketing budgets. Big, big company. And Netflix is this little startup, and there's a story about how the the CEO uh, of Netflix, Reed Hastings, he went and had a conversation with the then uh, CEO of Blockbuster and said, hey, listen, we have something going here. Let us take over your online presence. We'll run it for you. You guys do the stores. We'll do great together. And the CEO of Blockbuster and and their board just laughed him out of the room. They thought it was absurd, just ridiculous. And in the 10, 15 years following that conversation, Blockbuster, of course, has gone completely bankrupt. They don't have a single store. They really don't have anything online. I went to Blockbuster.com, and there's not really even anything there. The company has ceased to exist. And some of us here may have heard of Netflix. I don't know. They don't even do DVDs anymore. They're famous for streaming, which is the new, newest form uh, that media comes to us. Arrogance, it can, it can affect us individually and as corporations, as groups. And it may not be surprising that, that I think it's, it's easier uh, in some ways to, to step into a place of arrogance when we're part of a group. I mean, it's, it feels good to be surrounded by other people who are also good-looking and right and really good at stuff. It's, it's easier to feel that way about myself when all of us have the only thing, uh, when all of us have it all together, when we're the only ones, when we have all of the truth, when we are special and it's been given to only us. It, kind of, it feels good when I'm surrounded by that. It kind of maybe even feels like there's a little bit of protection around that arrogance. I think of religious movements that are purifying, you know, kind of like Josiah's time as king. They begin as honest, humble, careful, fully submitted and aligned with what God is wanting to do, fully open to discover whatever God is leading, however He's going, whatever He tells them. Uh, a lot of purifying movements are are incredibly courageous, willing up, to willing to give up things in order to follow God. But then, as time goes on, sometimes the tendency is for those movements to get stuck and to become rigid in the thing that God had led at the beginning, at what was the new teaching, to get stuck there, to get rigid in that reformed place, and to stop listening for God's voice, for what He is leading to next. And so when the king of Egypt comes along and says, I'm speaking for God here, they can't hear the voice. It won't fit in the box. It's impossible that that possibly could be God. And so, for those like Josiah, what was good, what was beautiful, what was incredibly helpful for a community becomes the thing that holds them back. I think of, in extreme ways, how those original teachings can sometimes calcify into a weapon into a club. Uh, On the very far extreme end of the spectrum, we have movements like ISIS, which is a purifying movement, right? And, And maybe at its beginning it was motivated by purifying certain broken things in the culture, but then calcified and it became destructive, and especially once it had power, it now is perpetuating incredible violence and harm, all in the name of that rigidly held Idea at the beginning. And I think, in a much less extreme way, in a much less extreme way, we see this tension in Adventism as well. We have certain parties and factions that are trying to pull us back to saying, hey, this, this, this thing that happened, the good things that we created and that were reformed at the beginning, we need to get back to all of that and all of that exclusively, while there's other things, that, segments that are saying, hey, listen, like, God is pulling us forward. God is still speaking. He's leading us in… continue out into the world, so we have tension. And depending on who's in power… That arrogant rigidity can sometimes rule the day. I think of a statement that Ellen White made that's often quoted from the Review and Herald late in her life. She writes, there's no excuse for anyone taking the position that there's no more truth to be revealed and that all our expositions of Scripture are without error. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine will lose anything by close investigation. Richard Rohr, an author I've been reading lately, echoes this idea when he writes in his book about spirituality, all saying must be balanced by unsaying, and knowing must be humbled by unknowing. Without this balance, religion invariably becomes arrogant, exclusionary, and even violent. And so the question this morning, I think, becomes, how? Like how then? How then do we build this humility into our lives? You know, if, if humility exists on a spectrum where at one far end we have shame, which is extreme disregard for ourselves, and then over on the other end we have arrogance, which is this extreme extra regard, if, if, if the goal is to be somewhere in the middle, to be modest, to be humble, to to have reasonable confidence? How how do we wind up in this middle place? How how do we get to this place where we're not self-deprecating, but yet not self-aggrandizing? I I don't think that humility is something that we practice, per se. I I don't think it's like some of the other character traits, like like generosity, we can practice that right now at a drop of a hat. We can practice that. Or, or we can pra- practice prayer. We can, we can practice um, being… Uh, we can practice all kinds of things, right? <laughs> I lost my place. Um, I, I, I think that uh, humility, developing humility in our lives is, is kind of like… Uh, sanctification You know, it happens when our backs are turned. As we focus on Jesus, as we spend our life looking to Him, this thing happens, this, this change takes place when we aren't even realizing it. And so, I think that there are things that we can do, almost like environmental factors that we can put in place so humility grows. I don't think it's so much something that we practice. So here's a a few practical steps, things we can put in place that I think um, help curry uh, humility. The first one is focusing on God's greatness. Um, We often spell or pronounce God's name Yahweh, right? In Hebrew, it's known as the tetragrammaton. It's four letters, yod, hey, vav, hey. And in Hebrew, we don't pronounce it. We say Adonai or Elohim. We don't pronounce God's name. And part of that is, is because uh, many, many Jewish people a long time ago and today believe that God's name is not pronounceable. It's not something one ought to say at all. And in fact, maybe even the third commandment, the third of the ten, don't take God's name in vain, is about claiming we can know more about God than we actually can know. And so we don't say the name. You know, when Moses is on Sinai and he asks God what his name is, God says, I am that I am. I mean, what does it mean that God is omnipresent? What does it mean that God made everything there is by his word? What does it mean that God is omnipotent, that He is all-powerful, that He's omniscient, that He can know everything there is? I mean, what, I don't think we can grasp how big, how wide, how great God is. And really, I think that that's one of the benefits of coming together as a church family in rooms like This, worshiping together with big music and big words and old traditions. Like part of what it means, part of what we get when we come together in communities like this, in this space, and not just stay in our own homes and our own private places, is that we're filled with how great it's impossible to not be in this place and worship and realize and think about how great and how big God is. And not that I'm just a total insignificant worm, but just in comparison. I mean, God never came to a project where He's like, man, I'm in over my head. I bit off more than I can chew now. Like that, you know, that never happened for God. So focusing on God's greatness, his bigness, the first one. Um, the second one, uh, it's one that's really fun, uh, failure, right? It's like it works great for humility. I mean, we even say it in English. I'm going to get humbled or he's going to get humbled. We use the, the word like that because we know that very, very likely if we fail, there will be some humility developed in that. There's a a former Supreme Court Justice of the U.S. back at the turn of the century who, who said, humility is the first of the virtues for other people, right? Like It's really great for you to fail and you learn to be humble, but it's not something that we really want to receive for ourselves. And some of us, we could probably raise our hands. There's some of us in this room, we learn best by experimenting it and making the mistake. And, and then there are others of us in this room who learn pretty effectively by vicariously, you know, by seeing other people. And I think we see that a lot in Josiah's life, actually. You know, he inherited his grandfather and father that just totally messed up, made all kinds of bad decisions. And Josiah's life is 180 degrees different from them, and I imagine him learning a lot from their failures vicariously. I'm not going to do that. And so I think we can gain humility that way, but for some of us, we need to fail. So so failure. Third one, curiosity. If we live by the mantra that uh, curiosity killed the cat, then we're probably going to give up a lot of joy. We're probably going to miss out on a lot of surprise. We're going to only see and get to experience what is predictable in our lives. I mean, if we're only pursuing the things that we already know, if we're only studying the things that we already know to be right and to be true, we'll never be able to experience the joy of seeing and hearing new things. And so I think curiosity is kind of intrinsically a playful deal. I think it's, curiosity is kind of a playful way of saying, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know. What, like, what if? What would God think about this? What, what if God did that? There's this uh, book I read in this last year, in the last several months, called How Children Succeed. And um, the author paints a picture that, that character development, these key traits, four or five, and one of the biggest ones he talks about is uh, curiosity, how these traits actually help kids succeed in life. And he defines success as you know, not ending up in prison, getting through school, those kinds of big kind of markers. And he labels curiosity. He, he talks about how important it is to try to build that in kids. And, and I think we think sometimes of curiosity as being sort of a childlike trait, something that almost maybe we, we give up or grow out of as adults. And so when Jesus says, you have to be like a little child to enter the kingdom of God, I think of being curious. And again, we see this in Josiah's life from, from a early, relatively early age, age 16, he's searching. What is God like? What are we missing? What is this God that I keep hearing about that I don't know about? Just completely open, tell me about it more. So third, curiosity, and fourth, the last one, deferring to other people. I think this is a practice that builds humility. In our lives, rather than insisting on my expertise, my knowledge, my doing it, my being in charge, my solution, my method, etc., rather than that, deferring to someone else's, asking them for help, asking them for opinion or to hear about their lives, even when I feel as though my opinion or way is better. This is really hard for perfectionists, and I'm going to raise my hand and preach to myself a little bit, because perfectionists that really, really want it done the best way feel that tension of, I know how to do it the right way, and if I give it to that person, then it might not be done the way that I want it to be done, and then what will happen? And so a lot of people who are perfectionists feel the weight of the world on their shoulders because they feel like they have to do everything because they only trust themselves and that's what it really comes down to, is trust. You know, in Josiah's story, he, he doesn't go to the high priest and say, hey, listen, I'm going to be renovating the temple, and you're going to have to take orders from me. No, he, he takes the money and he drops it off and says, fix it up. He trusts other people's judgment and wisdom and perspective and opinion. And that's where I want to end this morning, is trust. Because if humility is about acknowledging our own limitations and our own frailty and our own limited perspective, then for those of us who follow Jesus, humility necessitates us to trust God, to be open to his leading, to expect him to show up in our lives in new ways, to look for him to surprise us and to show himself in ways that we wouldn't have even imagined if it had been up to our own thoughts. I think about Jesus in the passion story and the humility he demonstrated as he was being hurt, tortured, and killed, and how for him that humility came out as great courage, as great faith in God leading him forward, even in the middle of uncertainty and suffering. So may we, May we all discover a posture of humility in our lives. May that safeguard us from the destruction that can come up and sneak behind us, and may it take place in our lives individually and collectively. May we be saved from the kind of pride that stifles joy and keeps us from what God's wanting to do next. May we have the courage to trust God for what he has next for us as a community.